Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, mental illness, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Henry Riggs woke up early on December 23, 1883, with a knot in the pit of his stomach. The 13-year-old pulled the covers over his head to block out the familiar sounds of his father and mother arguing outside the bedroom door. After a moment, Henry heard the door unlock. He peeked out from under his blanket and saw his father's haunted face lit by candlelight. He was holding a gun. Before Henry could cry out, his mother appeared in the doorway. She yanked his father back into the hall and slammed the door shut behind her. Henry was helpless. For a moment, he heard everything at once, the back and forth between his parents, the rustling covers as his sister awoke next to him, and his own sobbing. Then came the worst sound of all. Two gunshots. Henry Riggs' heart stopped. He had no idea what happened or who was dead. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're covering Henry Rathbone. We'll discuss how the Civil War hero failed to stop Abraham Lincoln's assassination and the violent end to his romance with his stepsister, Clara. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. 
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Henry Reed Rathbone seemed destined for great things. His family's high status sent him on a course to become a powerful political figure. His father, Jared Rathbone, was a titan of Albany, New York. By 1832, Jared had turned his brother's grocery business into a sprawling empire. The people of Albany loved Jared and voted him to become the city's first democratically elected mayor. Not all things were rosy for him and his young wife, Pauline, however. Their first child, Charles, passed away before the age of two. With loss fresh in their minds, Jared and Pauline doted on their second child, Henry, born in 1837. They heaped all the love, praise, and earthly comforts they could find on their son. He was only 18 months old when his father became mayor. From a young age, Henry knew he would one day possess considerable power and influence. If Jared was a king of industry in Albany, that made Henry a prince. Little Henry basked in his parents' adoration, but eventually he had to share the spotlight. When he was seven years old, his parents introduced him to his newborn baby brother, Jared Lawrence. The change sparked something in Henry he'd never felt before. For the first time, he didn't have his parents all to himself. In his young mind, this must have felt like a betrayal. Before I continue with Henry's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to Darlene Lancer, a licensed family therapist, jealousy is built on fears of losing someone precious. Feelings of mediocrity or low self-esteem fuel a toxic need to possess and lash out against loved ones. It takes root in relationships that end in real or perceived rejection and betrayal. While a person might know that these are irrational fears at their core, that only perpetuates a feedback loop of pride, self-doubt, and envy. Henry Rathbone's jealousy would have led him to become moody, stubborn, and defiant. He held on to these traits for the rest of his life. The most tragic thing was that Henry's jealousy was almost always a creation of his own mind. His parents loved him, and having a new little brother didn't change that. But Henry wasn't the only one who transformed after the birth of his brother. His father, Jared, started to complain of frequent chest pains and fevers. He staggered around the family mansion, gasping for breath. Eventually, doctors diagnosed him with pleurisy, an inflammation of the cavity that surrounds the lungs. At the time, the sickness was a death sentence. On May 13, 1845, Jared died at the age of 53. The city of Albany laid his remains in a tomb modeled after a Roman general's grave. Following the funeral, Henry's mother Pauline made clear that he was the new man of the house. All of a sudden, Henry was responsible for the massive family estate. He also inherited around $200,000, the equivalent of over $7 million today. Henry was fabulously rich, but all the boy wanted was his father back. He hadn't even turned eight years old. And there were more difficulties ahead. Just five days after Jared's death, a family friend, Ira Harris, lost his wife. 
Shared grief brought Pauline Rathbone and Ira together. Three years later, they were married. We can imagine that the arrangement did not sit well with Henry. To his young eye, Ira was a fish-faced ogre. He likely resented his stepfather for stealing the man of the house title from him. But things weren't all bad. Ira also brought up his four children in the Rathbone household. This was how 11-year-old Henry met his stepsister, 13-year-old Clara Harris. Clara was smart, witty, and just as playful and defiant as Henry. For Henry, Clara must have been a breath of fresh air, sharing in the lonely burden of inheriting his father's empire. Clara, likewise, seems to have loved her new stepbrother, but she was also worried about him. Henry was highly emotional and prone to long spells of brooding. Over time, he bottled up the resentment he apparently felt toward his stepfather. But to the outside world, Henry was well on his way to maturity. As he got older, he developed into a fair-faced young man with a delicate build. Despite his wealth, he chose to pursue an education in law, then enlisted in his state's militia. To further his education, Henry's superior officers sent him to observe the European militia as war broke out in Italy. While Henry was traveling, big changes came to the United States. In November 1860, voters elected Abraham Lincoln as the 16th president. The pro-slavery South despised Lincoln, and the following year, seven states seceded from the Union. After decades of tension, civil war had finally arrived. Shortly before the war, Henry's stepfather Ira Harris had been elected as a senator of New York. He moved his conjoined family to Washington, D.C., occupying a large manor mere blocks from the White House. Ira and Pauline Rathbone joined the Capitol's high society and became frequent guests of the president and first lady. Mary Todd Lincoln particularly enjoyed the company of Pauline and Clara Harris. They often went to dinners, balls, and the theater together. Lincoln's opinion of Ira, on the other hand, may not have been as rosy. Ira continuously pestered the president with favors and requests. Lincoln often joked that at night, he had to search under his bed to make sure Ira wasn't there waiting. Meanwhile, Captain Henry Rathbone returned to the States to help defend the Union in the Civil War. On March 5, 1862, he set out with the 12th U.S. Infantry. By the time he and his unit joined with the Army of Potomac, the 25-year-old's youthful enthusiasm had already worn off. Some sources say Henry was present for some of the Civil War's grisliest battles. On July 30, 1864, he reportedly took part in one of the biggest blunders ever committed by the Union Army. In Petersburg, Virginia, Union men blew up a mine underneath the immovable Confederate line. The blast killed over 300 Southern troops, and the North followed up by launching an attack on foot. It was a foolish decision. The blast had left a huge crater, 30 feet deep and 170 feet across. The forces charged straight into a wall of fresh dirt. While some of the soldiers eventually found a way around it, many floundered in the massive crater. Southern troops were able to pick them off like fish in a barrel. During the conflict, 
A rifle bullet is said to have struck Henry through the chest, nearly killing him. After nine hours of grueling combat, both sides retreated behind their lines. But Henry was left on the battlefield. If he'd given into exhaustion and passed out, his own men likely would have buried him alive. As the story goes, for 68 agonizing hours, Henry forced himself to stay awake until a medic finally rescued him. Henry survived, but his body, mind, and spirit began to collapse. Although he never received another serious injury, he fell ill several more times during the war. Eventually, 26-year-old Henry finally recovered from one of these bouts of sickness and needed a break. He requested a temporary leave, then traveled to the family home in DC, which he had barely even seen. His morale rebounded the moment he greeted his mother Pauline and his siblings, but what truly healed his soul was seeing his beloved stepsister, Clara, again. The last time Henry spent time with Clara, it was during his school breaks. Now, 29-year-old Clara was a mature and sophisticated woman. She was just as quick and playful as before, but had loads of connections to back it all up. Likewise, Clara saw a new man in Henry. War had made him vulnerable and selfless. He was no longer the pampered prince of Albany she once knew. Henry and Clara fell in love. And after a brief return to service, Henry returned to his stepsister and proposed marriage. They planned to wed when the war was over. But before then, a national tragedy would strike. Coming up, Henry is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In 1864, 27-year-old Henry Rathbone proposed to his stepsister, 29-year-old Clara Harris. When the Civil War ended on April 9, 1865, Henry and Clara planned to finally marry. Just five days later, a letter arrived for the young couple at the family's home in Washington, D.C. It was an invitation from President Lincoln and Mary Todd. They wanted Henry and Clara to accompany them to a performance of Our American Cousin, the play was set to begin in just a few hours, so Henry and Clara had little time to make up their minds. But there wasn't much thinking to do. 
It was Lincoln's first major appearance since the war had ended. The invitation was too huge to turn down. The couple prepared for a very public outing. Henry dressed his tall, slim frame in a fine civilian outfit. His auburn hair matched his handsome mutton chops and walrus mustache. Clara wore her hair in small spit curls that hung over her round face and her best dress. At 8.20 p.m., a sleek black carriage took the couple to Ford's theater. Once inside, lead actor Laura Keene caught sight of the president and halted the show for a moment. The orchestra strummed the first few notes of Hail to the Chief as some 1,700 joyous faces turned and erupted into cheers. As the president and first lady smiled and waved, Henry hung back with Clara. He noticed the theatergoers giving him strange looks from below. It slowly dawned on him why they were so confused. The morning paper had announced that Lincoln and his wife would appear with the commander of the victorious Union Army, Ulysses S. Grant. But Grant had declined to show. In fact, a long list of political celebrities turned down the evening show for some reason or another, including Lincoln's eldest son. Finally, Mary Todd suggested Henry and Clara. Although they were happy to join the Lincolns, both likely figured out they were at the bottom of a very long list of potential guests. Even so, Henry and Clara kept their heads high. They entered the theater through a lobby door and climbed into the raised state box together. Lincoln took a walnut rocking chair while Mary Todd sat at a straight back cane chair beside them. Clara was fortunate enough to snag a spot in the chair next to Mary Todd. Henry, meanwhile, had one of the worst views. He sat on a velvet sofa slightly behind all the others. Not only that, but a large pillar stood directly in his line of sight of the stage. He had to lean forward and crane his neck to even see the performance. Eventually, he gave up trying to watch the play and instead turned his attention to the president. Lincoln was in good spirits as he received the crowd, but up close and private, he appeared old and tired. Later, Henry returned his attention back to the play as best as he could. One of the biggest jokes was about to land and he could feel the audience anticipate it. On stage, one of the lead actors set up the gag by saying, don't know the manners of good society, eh? Henry grinned. He didn't notice a shadow exit the lobby and slip into the box on his left. He was too entranced as the actor responded with the punchline, well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, you sockdologizing old man trap. <laughs> President Lincoln laughed as the shadow raised a gun. In a flash, John Wilkes Booth discharged his Derringer pistol into the back of President Lincoln's skull. Only Henry heard Booth's next word, freedom. All of a sudden, Henry leapt into action. He charged through a cloud of gun smoke at Booth, but once he had his hands on the assassin, Booth easily twisted away. Though Henry was a war veteran, he was an officer and spent much of the latter days of service doing desk work. Booth, meanwhile, was 26 and a spry athletic actor. Booth drew a large hunting dagger and thrust it at Henry's heart. Henry knocked the blow to the side and the knife that would have killed him drove upwards into his left upper arm. 
he fell back and Booth lunged for the front of the box. As he stepped up onto the railing, Henry managed to seize a fistful of his clothes. When Booth jumped, Henry tore a piece of clothing off and the assassin landed badly. The fall injured his leg or ankle. Booth limped across the stage with the bloody dagger still raised. Henry leaned over the railing and called out for someone to stop him. Clara had just recovered from her shock and echoed the call, but Booth was able to exit through the back of the stage before anyone could respond. The audience was stunned. Many believed it was all part of some elaborate performance. When one man asked what was happening, Clara broke the news. The president had been shot. In an instant, the entire audience came alive with panic. Up in the box, Mary Todd wailed over her unresponsive husband slouched in the rocking chair. Clara tried her best to calm the sobbing first lady. Meanwhile, Henry tried to pull himself together. He knew the cut on his arm was bad. He'd felt the blade travel up his arm between the shoulder and elbow, piercing his skin inches under his armpit. The pain was unbearable, but he had to act now if there was any hope to save Lincoln's life. Henry rushed to the door. Booth had wedged a plank there to keep it closed, so he had to shove his body weight against it to fling it open. Henry feared another attack, so he controlled who came in and out. Soon, doctors carried the barely living president outside. Henry and Clara followed with the inconsolable first lady into a house across the street from the theater. Once the president was taken care of, Henry started to collapse. He rested his weakened body in the hallway as his blood stained the floor and walls. The color had drained from his face and he could barely keep his eyes open. A man stopped him and asked about his arm, but Henry essentially told the man to ignore him and save Lincoln. Clara eventually found her husband and tied her handkerchief around his wound. As the adrenaline coursing through his body faded, Henry felt the pain rise. He pushed himself up, pale as a ghost, took a few steps, then fell to the floor and lost consciousness. Clara helped get Henry to his feet and escorted him to her father's home. Throughout the attack, only she remained cool and collected, though the entire front of her dress was covered in Henry's blood. She called for a doctor to look after Henry, who removed the bloody handkerchief from Henry's arm. Boots' knife had pierced veins, muscle, and nerves, but had just barely missed a major artery. If Clara hadn't tied the handkerchief around his wound, Henry likely would have bled to death. Clara breathed a sigh of relief. If she could do nothing to save the Lincolns, at least she did something for her husband. But nothing comforted Henry as the doctor stitched his wounds. He ranted and raved in a fit of delusion. He cried out loud for someone, anyone, to save the president. His mind replayed those few brutal seconds in the theater over and over again. The following morning, Lincoln was dead, and investigators worked to piece together the events of the murder. But they didn't have much to go on. The theater audience only had a partial view of the action, and Mary Todd suffered a mental breakdown. Clara and Henry were the only true eyewitnesses to the assassination. 
Clara was first to tell her version of events. Her story matched the version we've recounted already. However, she reportedly differed on one major point. She initially told an investigator that when Booth entered the box from the lobby, Henry rose from his seat and demanded to know what Booth was doing there. Booth hadn't responded. He'd simply aimed the Derringer at the back of Lincoln's head and pulled the trigger. On April 17th, Henry recovered enough to give his own testimony. He claimed he didn't even notice Booth until Lincoln was already shot. Over time, Clara's story changed to match her husband's. Whether this was a mistake in her memory or an attempt to protect Henry's reputation, we can never know. Although investigators logged Henry's version as the official story, Clara's original contradictory story reached the press first. People believed Henry had not only failed to catch Lincoln's killer, but also had a chance to stop the assassination in the first place and didn't. The guilt ate at Henry, but he and Clara laid low in the aftermath. By that summer, John Wilkes Booth and all but one of his co-conspirators were dead or in prison. When the public lost interest in them, Henry and Clara finally wed two years later in Albany. They quickly bought a house together in Washington, D.C. In 1870, Henry and Clara welcomed their first son, Henry Riggs, into the family. He was the first of three children, which included little Gerald, born a year later, and Clara Pauline the year after that. By then, Henry had tendered his resignation to the army. With his rank and inherited wealth, he could live the rest of his years in semi-retirement. In 1877, he tried to join the new president's cabinet to make himself useful. Unfortunately, he was rejected. Henry would never hold a steady position again. Everyone could tell that something was not quite right with him. At the time, people called Henry's condition soldier's heart, since soldiers who returned from war often carried a darkness in them. It would go by other names over the decades, including shell shock, battle fatigue, war neurosis, and post-Vietnam syndrome. Today, it's known as post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD remains controversial and difficult to treat. It has gone misunderstood for centuries. Dr. George Komaritis, a clinical psychologist with over 40 years of experience working with veterans, notes that people once considered PTSD to be a personal weakness. Among the mostly male population of war veterans, PTSD was considered a moral failing. We now know that stress from trauma is not only common, but expected. Dr. Komaritis learned that almost every single person who experienced war was psychologically changed in some way. Henry was no exception. He had endured the intensity of the Civil War. He suffered from mood swings, anger issues, and depression. His passionate outbursts and testy moods multiplied and darkened. He was restless when he didn't sulk, and his emotions ran cold when they didn't flame out of control. What clearly bothered him, and what became the focus of his obsession, was Lincoln's murder. Everywhere he looked, something triggered memories of the assassination. The president's name and face were practically everywhere since his popularity surged after his death. Even his own son, Henry Riggs, was a constant reminder of Lincoln. The two shared a birthday, February 12th, 
When something reminded Henry of his traumas, his entire body tensed up as if prepared to meet those triggers with violence. His brain never accepted that the assassination was in the past. Instead, Henry acted as if it could happen again at any moment. It was like he expected the long-dead Booth to emerge from every shadow to kill again. Over time, Henry's passionate outbursts became more frequent and explosive. His conversations almost always turned toward Lincoln. He pleaded with his friends and family, begging to know if anyone blamed him for failing to save Lincoln's life. They assured him that wasn't the case, although there were certainly people out there who did. They complained that if a braver man was in the theater box like General Grant, Booth wouldn't have dared pull the trigger. It's not clear if Henry ever met anyone who blamed him to his face, but there was no need. Henry drowned himself in guilt. He played out fantasies in his head where he threw himself in front of the gun and took a bullet for his nation. Clara, meanwhile, remained elegant and popular among the capital society, and she flourished as a mother of three. But she knew that her husband was falling apart, and falling apart fast. All too soon, she became another target for her husband's anger. If any other man gave Clara attention, Henry threw a fit. No matter the scene or company, he would launch into jealous rages and command the men to leave his wife alone. Afterward, he would collapse against Clara and beg her to stay with him. She had to continually assure Henry that she didn't plan to leave. Yet, no matter what she said, Henry didn't believe her, just as he didn't believe his friends when they claimed they didn't blame him for Lincoln's death. The stress caused Henry physical problems as well. He suffered from excruciating nausea, heartburn, ulcers, and vomiting spells. A doctor diagnosed him with dyspepsia, indigestion often linked to high anxiety, depression, and trauma. Old friends tried to help Henry get a role in the new White House, but no one wanted him around. His physical and mental decline were all too apparent. He shambled through the house wearing blank, haunting stares. He had nothing to do but relive those 30 seconds from April 14, 1865, over and over again. Henry finally decided that he and his family should go to Hanover, Germany, where he hoped to find a cure for his dyspepsia. Clara was reluctant and worried the children would be at risk if they spent too much time with their father. She convinced her sister Louise to accompany them when they headed to Hanover in 1883. Despite her husband's troubles, Clara still loved him. She believed there was hope for Henry. But destiny had something else in store for the couple. Coming up, another tragedy strikes. Now, back to the story. In 1883, 46-year-old Henry Rathbone, his wife, 49-year-old Clara, and their family traveled to Hanover, Germany. Henry was looking to cure his dyspepsia and depression, but didn't make much progress. A week before Christmas Day that year, Clara Rathbone anxiously told her sister Louise, quote, the end is not far off. While once there were peaks and slopes in Henry's condition, now there were only shadowed valleys. 
He was paranoid that Clara meant to abandon him and take their children away. His sorrow and jealousy had turned him hateful and deathly silent. At night, he slept with a loaded revolver under his pillow, as if he believed Booth might spring out in the dark. Clara confided in her family that she had considered the unthinkable, divorcing Henry and leaving with the children. Although divorce was taboo at the time, she feared that Henry was a danger to himself. She couldn't risk her children seeing something like that. On December 22nd, Henry sat alone in the drawing room. He stared at nothing and said nothing. Moments like this chilled Clara. She knew that more than anything, she had to protect her children. She simply had no idea what her husband was capable of anymore. That night, Henry writhed from dyspepsia and insomnia. Then at 5.30 a.m., he climbed out of bed. He took a candle and his loaded revolver down the hall to his children's room. Henry knocked on the door until Louise approached from the other side. He asked her to unlock it, but she refused. Henry, in a fit of delusion, assumed the kids were getting dressed and preparing to flee from him, never to return. He demanded Louise open the door and let him in. By then, Clara was up. When she saw Henry with the revolver in his hand, she charged forward. She told her sister to lock the door and save the children. Henry spun toward his wife and Louise heard them argue and struggle in the hall. He then dragged Clara back into the master bedroom and slammed it shut. Louise went out to protect Clara, but Henry threw her out and locked the door. As Louise called for help, she heard Clara call out, Henry, let me live. Two gunshots thundered through the house. Louise froze in the hallway. She listened through the door, but only heard silence. A house servant raced up the stairs to help. She and Louise broke down the bedroom door and found Clara and Henry on the floor, covered in blood. The revolver and a bloody knife laid next to them. Louise fell to her sister's side. Clara had two bullet wounds in her chest and a stab wound to her heart. Her last words were, He has killed us both at last. She lived only a few more minutes. Meanwhile, Henry was conscious but seriously wounded. Five self-inflicted knife wounds covered his chest, with one deep enough to reach his lung. Disoriented, he called out for a glass of brandy and Clara. When he saw his wife dead in Louise's arms, he fell apart. He demanded to know who killed her. Louise was stunned. Henry seemed to have no clue that he'd murdered his own wife. She soon called the German police to the scene. The authorities found Henry still on the floor beside his wife. He raved about armed men hiding behind the paintings on the walls. They arrested Henry on the spot and his trial was brief. He claimed that an intruder had broken in and attacked him and Clara. We cannot be sure if Henry legitimately believed this or not. It was likely true, however, that he had no memory of killing Clara. German officials ended the proceedings when it became obvious that Henry was unfit to stand trial. In early 1884, he was sent to an asylum in Hildesheim. 
Meanwhile, Clara's brother took the three Rathbone children to live with him in Cleveland, Ohio. He told the children to consider their father dead and gone, just like their mother. At last, Henry's fear of losing Clara and the children came true. Henry spent the rest of his days at the asylum in Hildesheim. The place was once a monastery and was still attached to St. Michael's Cathedral, a tourist hotspot. Henry was free to walk the monastery grounds and the cathedral. He kept mostly to himself. He ate apart from his neighbors and roamed the gardens alone. In 1891, his military pension required a review of his physical and mental health. The U.S. Army commissioned German physician Dr. Rosenbach to interview him. By that point, Henry was 54 and in relatively good spirits. According to Rosenbach's report, he no longer complained about his dyspepsia and kept himself groomed and well-dressed. But his mental health was still fragile. He rambled about strangers gliding through the halls at night, keeping him awake. He claimed there was a device hidden in the walls that spewed noxious vapors and gave him headaches. Dr. Rosenbach diagnosed Henry with incurable delusions of persecution. But as he bid Henry farewell, the doctor noticed something that struck him as curious. He never discussed Abe Lincoln or Clara. He also apparently didn't ask about his children's well-being. It was odd considering other reports noted how devoted Henry had been as a father, but it did make some sense. He was finally free of his triggers. People and their susceptibility to trauma differ. What one can handle, others might struggle to bear. Henry was never able to process his grief. The early loss of his father likely changed him as a child. The Civil War bent him further and Lincoln's murder broke him entirely. By the time he killed Clara, he was barely in control of his actions and thoughts. In the solitude of the asylum, Henry realized he would never again be a free man. However, he was also finally free from the specters that had haunted him for so much of his adult life. He was able to find a sort of peace. Although he wasn't able to be released, he recovered enough to no longer be a danger to anyone. On August 14, 1911, Henry died after an unexplained illness. At age 74, he'd spent over a third of his life in the walls of the converted monastery. German authorities buried him in the same cemetery as his victim, Clara. Back in the US, news of his death made only for casual interest. His obituaries were brief. His legacy was distilled to that of a war veteran, a witness to Lincoln's murder, and a murderous madman. A literal mountain of books have been written on Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War, and John Wilkes Booth but few can recall the names of the other two people in the presidential box that night at Ford's Theater. The tale of Henry and Clara reminds us of the dangers of ignoring the mental health of our loved ones. To quote author Caleb Jenner-Stevens, Henry's story is also a lost lesson in how small a person can feel after coming so close to greatness. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Henry Rathbone, among the many sources we used, we found the book, 
worst seat in the house by Caleb Jenner Stevens, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Daniel William Gonzalez, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself, as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast once upon a time and catch new episodes Mondays free and only on Spotify.